Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? Fossil fuel phase-out is the most effective and the most important public health intervention of our times. We cannot have a healthy future without fossil fuel phase-out, and failing to phase-out fossil fuels will be a death sentence. Even if it doesn't deliver everything climate advocates had hoped for, or, to be realistic, many things, COP28 has already been historic within the near 30-year history of this climate negotiations process. For the first time, this COP dedicated a day to health and the linkages between climate change and our ability to lead healthy lives on this changing planet. My colleague Jenny Ravello was right in the middle of it. You'll hear that in this next episode in the midst of the buzzing media center of Dubai's COP Expo. She was able to track down Dr. Marina Romanello, the executive director at Lancet Countdown, for a conversation about the health dimensions of climate change. Dr. Romanello doesn't mince words here. Climate action, she says, should be measured in the number of lives saved or lost. And we are past the point of ignoring the direct link between fossil fuel emissions and worsening health outcomes. In the wake of what is likely this COP's biggest controversy to date, a video recording in which the COP president appears to downplay the need for phasing out fossil fuels, it's the life or death question at the center of it all. Here's my colleague, Jenny Ravello with Dr. Marina Romanello. Hi everyone, Jenny Ravle here, Global Head Reporter for DevEx. We're here in Dubai at COP28. We've concluded um, the Health Day, which is what the health sector has been really looking forward to. Yesterday, there was the health ministerial that actually extended almost close to 9 p.m., really a lot of Health ministers and senior health representatives were there, um, you know, making their statements, uh, telling everyone what they're doing and some of the challenges they're facing in terms of addressing the health impacts of climate change. I do want to ask you, Marina, how would you describe what transpired for health over the past two days? So, as you said very, very well, this is the first time that we have a health day in a COP that health is formally acknowledged and has a space, a formal space within a conference of the parties. But it's been 27 years before we embedded the most basic fundamental consideration when we talk about climate change, that is how it affects us and our health. Health is not only our diseases, everything, our mental health, our well-being, 
the environmental, the economic determinants of health, and all of those are being undermined by climate change. So taking health into consideration within the climate negotiations is fundamental to ensure that whatever we do here, whatever outcome comes, is focused in protecting what we care about the most, that is people, their health, their well-being. So it has taken us a very, very long time. But as you said, first Health Day has formally now given us space for health in the agenda. We had a ministerial yesterday, which again is the first time that we have ministers of health coming to a discussion that is fundamentally about people's health and people's survival. So that was an enormous achievement. We saw, uh, I think it was something like 70 different ministers of health doing very powerful declarations, talking about the impacts that they're already seeing, talking about their needs, talking about the barriers to action and what needs to happen in terms of ensuring a prosperous, healthy future uh, through climate action. And that for us is in its own right an enormous success. What we do want to see moving forward though is that that now transpires into what actually moves the needle, that is what happens in the negotiation rooms. We really need to see these climate negotiations acknowledge that they're negotiating with people's lives, with people's survival, and therefore formally incorporating health considerations and the perspectives of the ministers of health and the health sector within the climate negotiations is the next step and what we're all striving towards. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned, you know, in, in the lead up to this momentous event, of course, for, for the health sector, um, of course, the Lancet Countdown for which you're leading um, published it's eight report, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, you've been publishing this report since 2015 and um, really there's just a lot of data and information in, in that report. Maybe we can start by just, I guess, uh, you know, obviously you've published that weeks before, but is there anything that really jumped out at you when you were you know, working on this latest report that you, you thought, gosh, we really need to get our priorities in order? So, as you well said, the Lancet Countdown report is the eighth report of Lancet Countdown. To set the scene a bit, it, it is a report that has contributions from 114 leading researchers from around the world, including uh, UN agencies, the WHO is one of our partners, we have the WMO, so it's a collective effort of the kind of cutting edge research on climate change and health. And what we're doing in that report is producing metrics and a, a sort of a global stock take, if you wish, to put it in UNFCCC terms of health and climate change. And again, eighth report, we launched just after the Paris Agreement was signed. And the Lancet Countdown's formal name is the Lancet Countdown Tracking Progress on Health and Climate Change. So when we launched, the whole idea was to do that stock take in which we would monitor the health benefits of climate action as we delivered the goals of the Paris Agreement and what are the opportunities for maximizing the so-called health co-benefits of climate action to ensure that whatever we do to tackle climate change makes lives and livelihoods so much better and so much more equitable around the world. And in this eighth iteration, what we're seeing sadly is that the health impacts of climate change are relentlessly increasing we are seeing that we are not doing nearly enough to protect people from the health impacts of climate change through adaptation, through health system resilience. We're really lagging behind. And what's the most concerning is that it's the most vulnerable countries, the most vulnerable communities within every country that are being disproportionately affected. 
no one is left untouched. Um, this year, for the first time, we've introduced new projections into the report, where we're looking forward at what it would mean to not act on climate change. So we see that even if we manage to keep global mean temperature rise to two degrees, that is the, the upper bound set in the Paris Agreement, we would see every single one of our indicators of, of the metrics that we monitor on the health impacts of climate change getting disproportionately worse. So we're looking at, by mid-century already, 370% of an increase in heat-related mortality if we don't act. We're seeing um, an, an increase in food insecurity, people that cannot access the food that they need to meet their basic nutritional needs, with half a billion more people becoming food insecure due to heat wave increase alone, let alone all the other hazards that we're facing. We're looking at an expansion of deadly infectious diseases like malaria, dengue, and we know that if we haven't been able to adapt to 1.14 degrees, that is what we're currently facing, a two-degree world would be a death sentence for millions. So what transpires really clearly in this report is the costs of our inaction, and we have a whole set of metrics that go even further and show us that in many dimensions we're moving really rapidly in the wrong direction. So we're getting worse. And to give you an example, we have new metrics that show that the oil and gas sector, even since last year, has expanded its oil and gas production plants. In February 2022, they were on track to exceeding the levels of emissions compatible with a 1.5 degree of heating by 122% in February 2022. Over the past year, this has gone up. And in February this year, we were looking at a 178% increase in the levels of emissions exceeding that 1.5 goal. So despite all their greenwashing, despite all their claims, what they're doing in plans that they state, this is their, their data that we're analyzing, it shows us that they're planning to increase to the detriment of us all, the oil and gas production plans. So um, you mentioned about some of the projections, right? And you know, reading the report is like, we have a really, really grim future when we, when we look at it. But when we think about the long timelines, like you know, mid-century, by the end of this century, um, do you think that's making governments complacent or at least don't see the urgency of kind of acting now because you know, it's not tomorrow, it's not next year? It's very interesting because what we try and do is show what the impacts are today. So with most of our indicators, what we by and large do is monitor what's happening today. And that has brought the, um, the reality of the cost of climate change that we're already seeing today. The title of our report talks about um, irreversible harms that we're facing. And the reason we say that is because each life that we're losing because of the impacts of climate change is irreversible. When you look at the human damage being made, there's no coming back from losing a life. So those impacts are already being felt today. And to give you a few examples, heat-related mortality of adults over 85 years of age has increased by 85% since the 1990s alone. And if we hadn't seen temperature rise, we would have seen less than half of that. We're seeing, we talked about um, food insecurity just now in the projections, we're already seeing 127 million people that have already become food insecure as a result of the increased frequency of heat waves and drought events since recent decades alone. So we're already feeling the brunt 
of the impacts of climate change and what's worse we're already seeing our health systems being unable to, call, to cope with the current level of heating. So what we're seeing today is that there's an acute urgency to deliver adaptation, particularly in the most vulnerable countries, the most vulnerable communities. We have a huge adaptation gap, huge problem of underfunding um, of the health sector and of the health determining sectors that involves our food sector, that involves our energy sector, our transport sector, all of those sectors that our, our health and well-being depends on. We need to increase our adaptation. And the cost of inaction is already enormous. But the other thing that we're seeing is that if we don't, we don't have the luxury of doing one without the other. So if we don't simultaneously, enormously increase our efforts to mitigate, we will exceed that 1.5 degree world. And the price of that is that adaptation will become increasingly costly, increasingly difficult, and that every effort that we're doing today, all of the announcements of finance that we've heard during this COP, which are enormously welcome, they will not be nearly enough. They will be a drop in a notion of harm if we don't urgently tackle our greenhouse gas emissions as well as adapt to the current levels of heating and to the 1.5 that we are inevitably going towards. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. No, we have that data and also people have been saying, you know, health is the face of the climate change crisis, right? But how can we get governments, you know, some of them are the ones really producing this, you know, fossil fuels um, and, you know, increasing that production and also subsidizing them. So how can we get more of these governments, really the decision makers, to understand this and really care and act on it? So that's where I think that the health argument is so powerful and that putting, um, we say that everything that we do to tackle climate change should be measured in lives saved. And when you put that common metric as an end goal, everything that you do around it is focused on improving health and well-being. So you strike the perfect balance because that was what we we're heading towards. We see many governments saying, for example, well, it would be enormously costly to tackle climate change. And what we're seeing is that actually it's a very cost-effective investment that tackling climate change today would serve, save trillions of losses in terms of the loss and damage of future impacts. And that becomes even more so when you consider the health benefits of action and the health co-benefits. 
we're every year losing, our estimates suggest, 1.2 million lives from exposure to air pollution that comes from fossil fuels. There's a new uh, analysis, a new study that says it could be up to 5 million lives. Those lives are costing us not only in human terms, but also in economic terms. We're losing um, labor capacity, we're losing um, commercial capacity. It's having a huge toll. And we're seeing, for example, that in the increased incidence of, of heat and extreme heat events, people are unable to work outdoors when it gets increasingly hot. Here in Dubai, in the summer season, people are not allowed to work outdoors during the, the hottest hours of the day. And our estimates suggest that globally, we're already today losing eight, over 800 billion US dollars a year in terms of the economic losses associated with that heat exposure from pe people's incomes. So it makes economic sense to tackle climate change. But it also makes sense in terms of a health investment. Healthy communities are the most resilient communities and healthy populations are the most productive populations. So when we take that into account, tackling climate change, increasing our adaptation efforts, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels, which yield very productive societies, and will also open the door to a new, um, very prolific economic sector. We know that for each unit, um, each dollar, each pound that we invest in the oil and gas sector, we could generate three times more jobs by investing it in the renewable energy sector. So it is a huge economic driver. The problem is that there's a very powerful few that are benefiting from the oil and gas sector that are blocking those discussions. And that is where we have to ensure that we're not bound by those interests and that what we're delivering is to the interest of us all as a global community. Before I jump on the, the big controversy, I do want to know, because the Lancet Countdown also published um, data for, uh, on some of the countries, right? Not just like the big global data, but also um, you have country page data uh, for you know the, the impacts of health on human health, on the economy and all that. Can you talk a little bit about, because you mentioned already about Dubai and you know how workers can't really go out during a very, very hot time during summer. Um, can you talk about the situation in the UAE? Well, the UAE is a country that is um, obviously in a desert, in a place where temperatures are extreme. And it has benefited enormously from the oil and gas sector that has come alongside enormous human development, enormous wealth, a lot of well-being, and there's no doubt that there has been a lot of economic, uh, economic and, and human benefits from oil and gas expansion, but they're not exempt from the brunt of climate change. We just talked about heat exposure. Heat exposure is particularly extreme here in Dubai. We generally here stay in air-conditioned uh, indoor environments, but when you cannot be in an indoor environment, you just cannot be outdoor in the summer season. And again, there's regulations that try to protect people from that. So outdoor workers cannot work uh, during the summer seasons. Tourism uh, is stag uh, stagnant during the summer seasons because of that, and again, that has a, a huge um, economic loss. The other thing is water security. Again, we're in a desert. Climate change is exacerbating um, droughts globally. We're seeing that um, over 50% more of the global land area is exposed to severe or extreme drought today than in the 1950s. And those pressures on, on our um, 
water security translate into food insecurity and that will start being felt more and more here in Dubai as well. The whole complexity of the environmental determinants of health are being felt here, so moving also into um, air pollution. Anyone that has been here has been seen and feeling in our breath, in our uh, skin, the enormous amount of air pollution that there is here in Dubai. And that comes on, a, on one hand from uh, dust, from desert dust. Desert dust is getting worse globally because of climate change, because of aridity, because of droughts. So we're being more exposed to desert dust, which is air pollution. And we're also seeing enormously high levels of fossil fuel derived air pollution from the road traffic, from flaring that's still occurring here in the UAE despite commitments to ban flaring. And that is having a huge toll um, to the health of local communities. You've laid out really the health impacts here, not just on health, you know, on food security and water security. How are you engaging with the UAE government saying, look, this is the data, you're seeing this and, you know, knowing that the UAE is a large producer of, of oil and gas and, and how are you engaging with it? Well, it's interesting. Our engagement throughout the last year, you will not be surprised to hear, was mostly around COP. So, in most of our engagements, we have been tackling kind of the global processes, but not really the national level processes. And that is a conversation that we have not had the opportunity of engaging with with the UAE. And we really hope that we will have that opportunity to show them just how beneficial it could even be for, for this country um, to transition away from fossil fuels and to deliver um, a healthier environment and healthier living conditions. Um, again, it's a country that is built on oil and gas, that has benefited enormously from a very thriving oil and gas sector. And you would understand why they want to defend that sector and, and it's to the interest, um, the short-term interest of um, many people here in the country. But in the long-term interest and in the broader collective interest, we have to think about ways of making Dubai a thriving country that is leading the technological revolution towards zero carbon energy sources. And there's a lot that they could be doing and they're only just starting to, to invest in that, but still very, very little. And we know that there's a lot more that they could do to be the, the actual global leaders that we need in this uh, kind of new world order. Um, I think that relates to the whole frustrations by some looking at the you know, um, first climate uh, political, climate health political declaration, wherein they're seeing we're not even mentioning about fossil fuels and their phase out in the declaration. Can you talk about it? the F word that we cannot mention. Yeah, um, it, 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 it speaks by its own. Um, that in the first time that we had fossil fuels mentioned in, in a COP uh, agreement was I think in, 20, uh, in COP26, when we were mentioning unabated coal and the phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. It's kind of beyond understanding that we're all um, consenting to have a discussion about the most fundamental threat to human civilization without even wanting to mention the cause of the crisis that we're facing because of political and economic interests. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. 
but are you subscribed to DevX Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Millions of professionals, healthcare professionals really wanted this, right? Like I think they wrote, uh, they wrote ahead of COPS saying this is a priority really to for us to, for governments to realize to phase out coal, uh, phase out fossil fuels. Um, do you have insights in terms of what happened there? Would governments not endorse this if that were in the document? So what we say is fossil fuel phase out is the most effective and the most important public health intervention of our times. We cannot have a healthy future without fossil fuel phase-out, and failing to phase-out fossil fuels will be a death sentence. We heard from Dr. Algebra talking that there's no scientific evidence. That's absolute nonsense. There's more than enough scientific evidence showing us that we absolutely are in trouble, that we absolutely must phase-out fossil fuels. And what he was leaning on is a few scenarios, hypothetical scenarios that were delivered, which count a lot on what is carbon capture and storage. That is a technology that is not yet developed at scale to be able to lean on that. And we're running out of time. We don't have time to wait for CCS to be developed, unfortunately, because of years of inaction. So today, the best chance of survival that we have is to actually phase out fossil fuels. That said, the very least you should do is not continue expanding, right? So while we're fighting for a word that is face down or face out, we're doing neither. We're facing up. And we continue to increase. Here in the UAE, and that right? increase includes here in the UAE. I was uh, listening to him yesterday speaking with um, the wonderful Mary Robinson in a very heated argument that they had. Uh, to which I think we, we, we all were clapping our hands to Mary for her courage. Um, and he was saying, well, it's not true that we're expanding our oil and gas. And then he said, well, it's not true that we're doubling. And he said, well, right, you're not doubling, but you are, though, expanding. And you're one of the organizations in the world that is expanding the most. And what they're saying is we will need oil and gas in the future. We need, even if we were to need oil and gas in the future, we have more than enough to cater for future needs under any of those scenarios of the IEA. And the IEA has made it enormously clear that there cannot be any new oil and gas projects, even under their scenario for net zero that accounts for CCS. So words aside, let's get to the bottom of this and not be hypocritical. We cannot have oil and gas expansion if we want to have any sort of a livable future. And what is being done by oil and gas companies today is in direct detriment and a direct death sentence for millions around the world. They're not investing in renewable energies. They're allocating less than 1% in renewable energy investments, if I remember that figure correct. But it's definitely no more than a, a one-figure digit. And that should be our collective priority. That should be where we're all heading to. Energy efficiency to reduce our overconsumption 
and to ensure a just transition and ensuring that even the most vulnerable, most underserved countries have access to clean renewable technologies and are not left behind in the transition to a new world economy and are not left dependent on toxic sources of energy like uh, fossil fuels are. Um, of course, we had a momentous first health day at COP, but of course, that's the reality as well, some of the things that you're mentioning, right? Um, when the Lancet Countdown Report was launched, you mentioned, um, I think, uh, there is still room for hope. Do you remain hopeful at this? We always remain hopeful because otherwise we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be working our heads off every year to produce a new Lancet report because we do believe that we're still on time to, to deliver a healthy future. But each second of inaction makes that prospect worse. We have seen some progress. We're seeing that the renewable energy sector is growing exponentially. We've heard from the IEA this year saying that we're probably going to see um, the, the, the curve um, for once and for all of our fossil fuel burning uh, tilting and, and that's a point of inflection. We're seeing um, yeah, an, an, an expansion and an, an adoption of renewable energies that we had never imagined we would have at, the, at this point in time. So we have enormous opportunities. We've been very blessed with an enormous amount of progress in the solutions. And we know what needs to be done. I was asked um, not that long ago by a, a committee here from the IEA in the co-planning committee, uh, what should we do about mitigation? And I looked at them straight in the face and I thought, what do you think I'm gonna answer? We need to phase out fossil fuels and we need to scale up, at least triplicate our renewable energy. They say duplicate our um, energy efficiency, I think we should go way beyond that because energy efficiency is fundamental to protect also the resources that we need for clean energy generation, which also come from our uh, limited natural resources and from a limited um, kind of planet that we have. So we need to really um, be honest and serious. We're not seeking for solutions. We know what we need to do. The problem that we have is enormous barriers, enormous economic and political interests that are now blocking action. And that's all there is. This is a political problem. I love, I love that, that you know, they even asked that question. Well, they were honestly asking. That's the interesting thing. They were trying to find other solutions. And I was like, no, that, that's it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marina, really for this insights that you and your time, of course, in sharing all of this with us. Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X formerly Twitter, at Alter Igo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. Jenny Ravello was the interviewer for today's episode. It was produced by Meg Richardson and edited by Naomi Mihara. The series editor is Catherine Cheney. It's hosted by me, Michael Igo.